All right, so for, for some of you, today starts your favorite time of the year, 25 straight days of Hallmark movies, right? Also, Christmas is coming up. I don't know if you know or not. But we all have some favorite Christmas movies, don't we? Um, show of hands, how many of you prefer kind of the, uh, the mushy Christmas movies? It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, I'll Watch Anything with Candace Cameron Bure in it. All right. How many of you, uh, how many of you prefer kind of the, the funny ones, you know, the uh, Christmas story, Home Alone, that kind of deal? Amen. All right. <laughs> um, all right. And um, for those of you who prefer the mushy ones, thank you for coming out to church today instead of staying home and watching Mingle all the way. Yeah, I looked it up and um, I'll try to have you home in time to watch Christmas at Graceland at 12. Um, <laughs> Anybody say the only Christmas movie I'm going to watch this season is Die Hard, brother? (laughs) All right. All right, so at this time of year, we really enjoy stories of hope, right? Many of us watch these movies where hope helps to overcome difficulties. Some of you especially dig those really sappy movies, and that's not an insult, you know, um, you, you like what you like and you know they're sappy, right? Uh, I've never liked the term guilty pleasures, you know, I mean, uh, if, if you listen to a New Kids on the Block Christmas CD on your way to church this morning, I ain't judging you, you like what you like, right? And I mean, that's your business, we're all different, so I don't get this whole, I like this, but I'm going to put it at an arm's distance and I'm going to call it my guilty pleasure, we shouldn't be ashamed of our differences. We, sh- we don't have to have guilty pleasures. Jesus is the cure for guilt, so if there's something that you genuinely should feel guilty about, you should lay that down at the foot of the cross and just leave it there. But if you like movies and stories with these super happy, very romantic endings, that's fine, okay? We all have our ta- own tastes, but today we're starting a look into the book of Ruth. And it really is this amazing story of love, romance, and hope that matches those movies that give you all the feels at this time of the year. Before we get into Ruth, though, there's this thing in the Bible that we talk about at this time of year. You know, many of us read the Christmas story with their families, not the one with Ralphie and the Red Ryder BB gun, but but the one, the original one, that starts in the Bible in Luke chapter 2, like this. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So just looking at verse 3, It reads like an establishing shot in a movie. Sort of, you know, if you're watching a movie and it's in London, they like show this shot of Big Ben and then it cuts to people, you know, um, drinking tea or driving on the wrong side of the road or what have you, you know. Or if you um, have a movie that's set in L.A., they show the Hollywood sign. Then you cut to the people doing whatever they're doing, right? It's like an establishing shot in a movie And then you switch to your characters in the story. So we have this verse, and it mentions Bethlehem. And then we move on with the story of Joseph, 
Mary, and Jesus. But what's the story of Bethlehem? How did it become the setting for the story that we read in Luke at this time of the year? Well, if you go back, there was another trip to Bethlehem hundreds of years before, a long time before Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus showed up there. There's this dude named Elimelech. And so let's read in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, starting at the first verse. All right, it tells us this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, look, it's that town again, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Y'all know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread, yeah. So Bethlehem means house of bread. So we're starting off in the book of Ruth, and there is a problem. The house of bread was out of bread. So there's the famine in the land. So Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two sons, and they head to Moab. Israel and Moab were not friendly nations. Right? They didn't get along, hadn't got along for a long time. If you go back to a time when the Israelites were wandering through the desert for 40 years, okay, the Moabites hired this dude by the name of Balaam to come along and curse, pronounce a curse on Israel. So these two countries are not allies. But you know what? If you're hungry enough and that person who was mean to you in third grade comes along and they offer you pizza, suddenly you decide maybe they're not that bad. You know, it's like, you know, suddenly, you know, I used to think that you were garbage, but now I'm seeing a better side of you. So they go to Moab because unlike, unlike Bethlehem, which is out of bread, down in Moab, they got the bread. They have what Bethlehem does not. But Moab is not their happily ever after. After they get there, Elimelech dies. So the husband of Naomi dies. Later, Naomi's sons take wives. But in verses 4 and 5, this happens. It says, They marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. For Naomi, this is ten years that have really beaten her down. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of this widow living in a foreign land for a minute. All right, so ten years ago, things were so bad that she had to leave everything and everybody she knew behind to come and live as an outsider here in Moab. They arrive as a family of four, and her husband dies. Naomi had probably hoped that her two sons would, you know, marry a beautiful girl from their people and from their faith. But one day, one son comes home with a Moabite woman named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, But he comes home with her, and then the other comes home, and he says, Hey, Mom, I'd like you to meet Ruth. She lives two streets over right here in Moab. Nothing in Naomi's life 
is the ideal. This was not the plan that she had for her life. This was never the life that Naomi wanted to lead. But she accepts Orpah and she accepts Ruth into her home, into her life. But one bad thing after another and Naomi just rolls with whatever comes for 10 years. A decade away from the life she had hoped for. And now she has no husband, but she has the two sons and their brides that she learned to love. And then one day, her sons are gone too. So question for you. These three widowed women living 2,600 years ago, what are their financial prospects like? Not very good, right? So, so this should give us some perspective on our own lives. You know, did you get mad yesterday because someone didn't start moving quickly enough when the light turned green? Or did you have to repeat your order into the speaker at Taco Bell? Or did you go to Food City and all of the lines were busy and you had to wait? And you're thinking, Lord Jesus, please help me in this time of struggle. I don't know how I'm going to make it, right? Sometimes, sometimes we confuse minor inconveniences with personal tragedies. And I don't want to make light of your struggles, but you may do well to look at your life and your stack of problems and stack it up next to Naomi's stack of problems and get a little bit of perspective there, okay? So some people have a rough life, and church, we should keep this in mind. We need to be compassionate to those who are hurting. And you ask, which people are hurting? Is it those people that I see and in the back window of their car, they have a sticker talking about somebody close to them who passed away? Are, are those the people who are hurting? Yeah, maybe them. What about the ones who seem to be complaining about their life all the time on Facebook? Are they the hurting people? Yeah, it could be them too. What about the ones who have a smile on their face and they seem like they have it all together? They could be secretly hurting too, couldn't they? Yeah, it could be them that are hurting. So I guess we just need to be consistent and be kind and friendly to everybody. Because you know what? If I don't concern myself with, is this person hurting or is this person hurting? I don't know. Then I don't have to figure it out. If I just choose to be consistent and kind to everybody, then I don't have to secretly think who is the hurting people. So whether it's the folks who are wearing their hurts out there for everyone to see, or the ones who are hurting behind, you know, struggling behind these smiles that they put on their face to hide it from everybody, whoever it is, you can just be kind and patient and show goodness and mercy to everybody. That's a lot of pressure off of you to not have to decide who really needs my compassion. Because there's no shortage of hurting people out there. And all of us can do small things to help brighten someone's day. Even if you're hurting yourself, you can choose to be positive and encouraging amongst your fellow strugglers. 
So let's not be in a hurry to beat people down, but let's also be people who rush to build people up. You know, there have been times in my life when I have felt discouraged or overwhelmed, and I'll get, you know, a nice encouraging text from someone, or I'll run into someone out and about or even at church, and they say something encouraging to me. And there have been times when that has made all the difference. So guys, I can tell you for sure, little things make a difference. And you know that in your life too. You've had small encouragements in your life. And you're like, wow, that really picked me up when I was down. So I try to be one of those people who encourages others and, and makes them know, let, you know, lets people know that they're seen. You know, smiling at, each, smiling at people, being friendly does not cost anything. So that's something we can do. But I wonder how many times... Have I been too busy with my own plans, my own struggles, caught up in my own thoughts to take the time to just acknowledge somebody and smile at them? That's the least we can do, but it can also be a lot. And I wonder how many people would have just passed right by Naomi, never bothering to look her in the eye, never bothering to flash a smile her way, And never realizing, completely being unaware of all she's been through. Sometimes there are big things we can do to make a difference in someone's life. And when you have those opportunities, you should seize those. But a lot of times, all the time, there are little things you can do to help brighten someone's day. So the small things you do to treat people like they're valuable, those are important things. But when good news finally comes Naomi's way, she still faces it like she's waiting to see what is going to go wrong. So Naomi receives word that the famine in Bethlehem is over. And it's literally the best news she's had in 10 years. The house of bread has bread again. So Naomi and Ruth and Orpah start on their way back to Bethlehem. But Naomi has this dread just eating at the back of her mind, and it will not go away. So she tells Ruth and Orpah this, verses 12 and 13. Return home, my daughters. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is, bitter for, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi has been through so many bad things in her life that when something good finally comes her way, she doesn't dare allow herself to get too excited. Sometimes we go through difficult times and we start to wonder, you know, is God against me? Have I done something that has caused God to want to punish me? You know what that is? That is called stinking thinking. (laughs) Seriously, when, when we allow negativity to rule our thoughts, that is stinking thinking. And there's this problem with negativity because our attitude drives our thoughts and our thoughts drive our actions. So if you engage in that kind of stinking thinking, 
then it's, just, then it's not just a matter of, okay, I have a negative attitude, but that's my business. Because if you believe that you are worthless, you will behave like someone who is worthless. If you believe that God is against you, you'll behave like you have nothing to gain and nothing to offer. And everybody you come across, yeah, they're made in the image of God. In your mind, you realize that. But you're not going to treat them like someone who is created in the image of God. So my attitude drives my thoughts. My thoughts drive my actions. So Naomi has this attitude that says, I'm cursed, God is against me. And that is stinking thinking. That's not how you want to be. So question for you, what makes people unhappy? Sometimes we have incorrect ideas about what it takes to be happy. Attitude plays a role in it. How many people have we seen in society who seem to have it all only to see them wreck their own lives? You know, you can go way back and look at Hank Williams, look at Elvis Presley, guys who had it all. In more recent times, you have Michael Jackson, George Michael, Whitney Houston, people with remarkable talent who at one point seemed to have everything who probably spent more money in a week at points in their lives than most of us will make during their lifetimes, right? But they were chasing after something that could not be attained through money, sex, or power, and that chase led each of those people to early graves. And I don't care to speculate about what their relationship with God were like at the end of their lives, but we all know what their relationship with this life was like. They, they left unsatisfied because they were chasing something that they couldn't get the way they were trying to chase it. So if you're unhappy and I give you a million dollars, you know what you're going to be? An unhappy millionaire. Except probably not for long because you're going to spend that money chasing after things that you think are going to make you happy. But, it's, but you're never going to achieve that. That won't last. So I just gave you five examples of how that turns out. So there are certainly some internal aspects that determine our happiness. Sometimes external aspects play a role too, though. In Naomi's case, circumstances were an issue. She tells the only family she has left, go back to Moab. Go back to your family. Guys, it's so important that we lift up those people who are discouraged. Every year around this time, about 3 million people in America suffer from seasonal affective disorder. As the days grow shorter, there's less sunlight to be had. It, it wreaks havoc on their brains. Okay? They, they become irritable. Some become depressed. And that's just one way of many that people suffer. That's one way out of many that people are hurting. And, and they don't need someone to tell them, just think happy thoughts. They don't need somebody to tell them, maybe you just need to watch more Hallmark movies. But if you think someone's struggling, you could invite them over to watch Christmas at Graceland with you. That investment by you 
may be what someone needs in their life. Life takes a toll on people. You may be looking at Naomi and you say, I feel you, girl. I'm there with you. You know, you're looking back at your life. You're looking back at the past few months, the past year, whatever it is, and you're counting more losses than gains. If so, then number one, don't live your life based on what others who are ignorant of your life, your brain chemistry, your hurts, and your history say about you. But do turn to those who care. I'm here. I'm willing to listen if you need somebody to talk to. But I'm telling you, nobody cares about you like Jesus does. And if that's you and you're hurting and you can't think enough positive thoughts to make your hurt go away, find some confidence in this verse. Psalm 46.1. It tells us, God is our, is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So guys, God is present with you. He cares about your pain, what you've been through, and what you're going through now. So, so what you've already been through is not indication that God is against you. When Naomi is about to give up, when she's decided that God is against her, God ha- God's time has come to turn Naomi's life around. And we'll get to all those details in the coming weeks, but better things than Naomi would have imagined or planned for herself are waiting for her back in Bethlehem. Sometimes the path to wellness starts with a change in scenery. Just just make a change in your life. And maybe you're ready to give in. Maybe you've decided that God is against you then I'd urge you to look at Naomi's example. Good things are ahead for her. Bethlehem is in the distance. You know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is your house of bread. He is your sustenance. He is your hope. Guess what? It might be lean for you today, but God has a better day ahead for you. Even in your dark days, look for the S-O-N, light. Because he's there for you, and nobody cares about you like Jesus does. So there's this one thing in Naomi's speech to Orpah and Ruth that we may not really understand at first glance. Anybody here who was living in the Middle East about 2,600 years ago? If so, you get it. No, nobody. Okay, cool. So let me go ahead and explain this here, because there are some concepts here in the book of Ruth that we need to look at through a cultural understanding, because you would look at it and say, well, that's weird. Or you're going to get to chapter 3, and you're going to read part of that, and you're going to say, wait, what happened now? That seems scandalous, okay? But Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth something that we may not be familiar with today. In Hebrew tradition... And law at the time, there was this idea of a goel, or translated into English, it would be a kinsman redeemer. And Zach will probably talk about this more in the coming weeks as we look at Ruth, because it's going to be very important. But if Naomi had a younger son, he would inherit his older brother's property. But he'd also be obliged to marry Orpah or Ruth 
and, and raise up children for his older brother who passed away. So if they go back to Israel with Naomi, these young ladies would be bound, would be bound to Naomi. So when she says, I don't have another son for you, you're thinking, okay, well, I didn't expect you to have another one. Hide him back here and bring him out and be like, hey, here's you one, right? That's not what we would be expecting. But to our sensibilities, you know, we, we get that. But what Naomi is saying is, in that atmosphere, if you go back with me, your life is on hold. She was offering them their freedom. She's essentially telling them, there is very little back in Bethlehem for me, and there's nothing there for either of you. So let's look at verse 14 for Orpah and Ruth's response. It says, At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Do you remember what Naomi called Orpah and Ruth? If you have Bibles open, look back there in verse 12. She told them, she said, return home, my daughters. But who did Orpah kiss goodbye? Her mother-in-law. Many of you are familiar with, uh, with Johnny Cash and his second wife, June. Okay? So in 2003, June Carter Cash died. And her stepdaughter, Roseanne Cash, spoke at the funeral. And she mentioned that, Rose, that June did not allow the youth of the term stepchildren in their house. Roseanne said this about her. She said, in her eyes, there were two kinds of people in the world. Those she knew and loved and those she didn't know and loved. Isn't that a beautiful way to be? So if you went to the house of Cash and she were there to introduce her stepdaughter, she's not going to tell you, okay, yeah, here is Roseanne, my stepdaughter. She'd say, here is my daughter, Roseanne. So I want you to get this, guys. Sometimes we employ words to create distance. I read an article a few years ago about, um, about how Appalachians almost have kind of our own dialect. We have a different way of talking. And one example of that was this phrase that it mentioned, and it said that we use it, and it said, might, could, M-I-G-H-T-C-O-U-L-D, right? And you're probably thinking the same thing I was thinking when I first read that. That's not a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. But then the article gave an example. Okay, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. That really is a thing that we say. I just didn't know other people didn't. All right, so let's say your friend asks you where you want to eat. You could reply, we might could go to Burger King. So you're not forcing your will, you're just naming a possibility, right? And there is a clear difference to us, to our ears, about the likelihood of that happening. All right, let's look at some phrases here, okay? If we say, I won't do that, or I might could do that, I could do that, or I will do that, we can see a difference, yeah? There is a difference uh, right down the line of the possibility of this event, whatever it is, happening. And I think that it's almost a casualness that, that urban people maybe can't relate to. Or, or they, or, or they would, might could use that terminology too, right? 
But that's just one example of how we use words to create distance. We do that for relationships as well. Words like step. Words like in-law. Half. Adopted. You know, um, you know, or, you know that's my half-sister. Or that's my peepaw-in-law. Uh, I, I don't know, I think that peepaw, if you have somebody that you could refer to as your peepaw-in-law, you probably should, because that is a great title to give somebody. <laughs> All right, so we can use these words for technical accuracy, but we can also use them to create a distance. Orpha says, okay, I will go home. I'll go back to my whole family. Good luck to you, sort of family. And we never hear from Orpa again. But then you have Ruth. And there's a reason we talk about her. We have remarks on Ruth because she is remarkable. So let's look at verses 16 and 17. It tells us, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Y'all thought Chris Tomlin made that up, didn't you? All right. Ruth, Ruth deserves a songwriting credit on that. But let's, let's pause and sing it. Okay, we might could do that, but we won't. Okay, so Orpah walks away, but Ruth says, no, you're not kind of family. You are my family. Ruth isn't building walls up. Ruth is tearing them down. Sometimes we develop a case of the yeah buts. Do you love Jesus? Yeah, but he understands that I have a temper. Yeah, but I don't think he minds if I flirt with that coworker. Do you want to follow Jesus? Yeah, but if you could just see my schedule. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm enough for what God's calling me to in life. You know what? Feelings can lie. You can feel inadequate and still be enough to feel a need in the life of someone else. Aren't you glad that when it came time for Jesus to be born, the Father didn't say, hey Jesus, do you love them? Yeah, but I don't think being born to a teenage mom is really my flavor. Yeah, but living a life of poverty is not that appealing to me. Yeah, but that dying on a cross thing, could we switch that out? Could I eat a plate of really hot chicken wings or something? I am glad that Jesus didn't have a case of the yeah, buts. Maybe Orpha was a decent lady. We'll never know for sure. But when it came to Naomi, did Orpha love her? Yeah, but leaving for an uncertain country for someone who was just a mother-in-law, that wasn't her thing, was it? But then you have Ruth, and she does not suffer from this particular affliction. Ruth has a yeah and. Did Ruth love Naomi as a mother? Yeah, 
and where Naomi goes, she'll go. Yeah, and where Naomi stays, she will stay. Yeah, and Naomi's God, that's Ruth's God now too. That's love. That is a friend. That is a daughter. Ruth offered Naomi freedom and she declined. So guys, Ruth's only obligation was a self-obligation. When Naomi told them, ladies, you're free, Ruth said, I'll have none of that. I'm all yours and you're all mine. This is what family should be. This is what friendships ought to be. You know, what are you committed to? Are there areas in your life where you'd say, you know, I'm not legally obligated. That's not my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife that I'm investing in. This isn't benefiting me, but I want to give back. Do you have areas in your life like that? If not, why not? There may be a child who could benefit from your presence in their life. There may be a teenager who is going through things that you understand better than most. Maybe you can be a positive in their life. We're going to read one more verse and then I'll wrap up, okay? Verse 22 says this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What these ladies don't realize is that barley season is what they've been waiting their whole lives for. The prior seasons of their lives have been hard and pain-filled, and they're barely holding on. But the season they're headed towards is the one where they will find their purpose. And it's a season of life where they are about to find some joy. They don't even know it yet, but they're not barely hanging on. They're barley hanging on. <laughs> All of this, right? Okay. All of this, everything they've been through was so that God could bring them to the right place at the right moment in history to bless them. And in blessing them, God's going to bless the rest of the world. So I don't know what your struggle is, but barley season may be on its way for you too. You say, Trav, I'm barely hanging on. God's near you. Hold on a little bit longer because God is working and he will turn your trial into a blessing. He will be your refuge and your strength. He will be your ever-present help in your times of trouble. So as we enter this Christmas season, hold on to that hope. I want you to know these two things. Number one, God never leaves us by ourselves as we, go through, as we go through transitions. I want you to say that bottom line with me on three. God is not against me. One, two, three. God is not against me. God wasn't against Naomi. That's why he placed a Ruth into her life. And then the second thing. We can be there for people when they go through difficult times. So, I want you to remind the person next to you, on three, God is not against you. One, two, three, God is not against you. 
Now remind the person on the other side of you if you have somebody on your other side. One, two, three. God is not against you. All right, so just keep that in mind. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time that we have to, to be together. I thank you for your word and the hope that it offers. God, you're an amazing God, and I thank you that no matter what we go through, you're not against us. You are for us. You are an ever-present help in times of trouble, that you care and that you're always providing good things into our lives. Just help us to be on the lookout for that. If there's anybody in here who's struggling, who doesn't have hope, just, just help them to turn to you. Help them to seek out the help that they need, Lord. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.